Hey listeners, on May 13th, we invite you to join us and Reed Hoffman for a new virtual strategy session presented in alliance with Capital One Business. You'll hear insights from fellow entrepreneurs about how to be at the forefront of leading change with AI. So go to mastersofscale.com AI strategy right now to register for free. Again, that's mastersofscale.com AI strategy. Looking forward to seeing you there. I had a perspective from the beginning of the pandemic that the conventional wisdom was perhaps not the right one. Are we hoping that somehow if we lock down hard enough, the virus goes away? Well, that's just wishful thinking. The lockdown class, the Zoom class, kept thinking, oh, we're so virtuous. Meanwhile, DoorDash, Amazon workers, FedEx drivers, UPS drivers, meat packers, all these people are braving the pandemic to serve you. I think the lesson is that we need to be more thoughtful. I think we need to rediscover what leadership is. I think certainly politicians need to rediscover what leadership is. We need to remember that there are things that show us that we're all in it together. That's Bethany McLean and Joe Nocera, co-authors of the new book, The Big Fail, about the societal and business lessons of the pandemic. I'm Bob Safian, former editor of Fast Company, founder of the Flux Group, and host of Masters of Scale Rapid Response. I wanted to talk with Bethany and Joe because as we move to a post-pandemic era, it's imperative that we apply what we learn through the challenging times. What Bethany and Joe are focused on is that perhaps the lessons we've anchored on aren't really the right lessons at all. Whether you accept everything they say, their emphasis on a clear-eyed, fact-based approach and on the trade-offs involved in any high-risk situation are instructive for any business leader. Let's listen in. We'll start the show in a moment. After a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. I woke up in the middle of the night because I had this nightmare that we were front page news, that we've done the stupidest mistake of our life by making this pivot. <laughs> That's Aparna Saran, Chief Marketing Officer for Capital One Business. And she's recalling a moment from her previous position at Capital One when she was heading up a team designing a new business card. We had just made the decision to go all in and sunset the prior version of the product, which was honestly the cash cow for our business. When we made that decision within a senior leadership meeting, as someone who had been on the journey to build this out for five plus years, it was really exciting. But by the time the weekend hit, I started to feel the responsibility and the pressure. We are taking this big bet on something that I've built. Perhaps you've been there. You've made a pivotal decision, and then panic sets in. How would Aparna calm her butterflies and steer her team through this pivot? We'll find out later in the show. It's all part of the Refocus Playbook, a special series where Capital One Business highlights stories of business owners and leaders using one of Reed's theories of entrepreneurship. Today's Playbook Insight, have multiple plan Bs. All 
I'm Bob Safian, and I'm here with Bethany McLean and Joe Nocera, co-authors of The Big Fail, a new book unpacking lessons from the pandemic. Bethany, Joe, great to have you with us. Nice to see you, Bob. It's been great a while. Great to be here, Bob. So we all worked together at Fortune back in the day, and since then, the two of you have collaborated on several big projects. Bethany was co-author of The Smartest Guys in the Room, the definitive Enron book, which Joe helped to edit. Uh, you then co-wrote All the Devils Are Here about the financial crisis. What prompted you to take on pandemic lessons? Like, Bethany, did, did you get a call from Joe at some point saying, we've got to do this? Joe and I have written our books about big things, big events that are at least in part economic calamities. And this was that. And I think I also had a perspective from the beginning of the pandemic that the conventional wisdom was perhaps not the right one. I think I did call you up and say, we have to do this. Bethany's very data oriented. And, you know, she was looking at data and she was saying, this doesn't seem right. These numbers seem wrong, you know. And she was actually tweeting some of this stuff. And uh, she was getting a lot of blowback. And so I was persuaded by Bethany. We had a really good human story, and we also had a really good uh, unconventional wisdom story. It was like, oh, I'm all in. How did you guys approach looking at this differently from the way maybe some others have looked at this landscape? One of the topics I've gotten fascinated with over the last couple of decades of writing about business, and it's been a slow evolution, has been where capitalism works and where it fails. And so to me, the pandemic was an opportunity to step back and also see what was working in capitalism and what wasn't, where it was making our society more fragile. The pandemic both highlighted and exacerbated those failings. We decided to look at it through the prism of institutions that were at the dead center of the pandemic, particularly hospitals and nursing homes. And so nursing homes have basically been taken over by private equity, and hospitals have become for-profit, uh, the big ones anyway. And then I had a particular obsession with school closings and lockdowns, that they exacerbated income inequality, but nobody was talking about that. You brought up lockdowns, which were devastating financially, required extreme government intervention to sort of restart these things in, in ways that we're still feeling the effects all over the economy. And you're skeptical, though, that it was worth it, right? Which seems to almost be a political argument today. You're not necessarily making it as a political argument. No, not in the least. No. This, this, okay, so now you got me going. There's two things going on here. The first is that the lockdown class, the Zoom class, kept thinking, oh, we're so virtuous, locking down. Meanwhile, DoorDash, Amazon workers, uh, FedEx drivers, UPS drivers, meat packers, all these people are braving the pandemic to serve you in your virtuous lockdown mode. That, that, so that, that's one thing that drove me nuts. But the other thing is they don't work. That, and that's what Bethany started to turn me on to very early on. They don't work. If you, if you look at countries that locked down versus countries that didn't lock down, you, don't, you can't tell which is which. You absolutely can't. I was skeptical from the beginning because of the very clear damage that lockdowns were doing and exacerbating inequality. And my sister, who's a doctor, kept asking what I thought was the obvious question, which is, what's the end result? What happens when you lift the lockdown? And well, as we all know, 
now from China. You lift the lockdown, the virus comes back. And so what's the end goal of locking down? Are we creating hospital capacity? Okay, if we don't need to do that, are we hoping that somehow if we lock down hard enough, the virus goes away? Well, that's just wishful thinking. I don't blame the epidemiologists at all. I mean, their job is to say, here's what you need to do to protect the society to the extent that you can. I blame the politicians. It's the job of the politicians not just to accept what they say, but to gauge risk versus reward, to say, okay, I've also got an economy to deal with. I've got school kids to deal with. I've got all these things that I need to balance. I I don't want to put a million small businesses out of business. What do I do to balance it? And, I mean, there is an answer. The heroes of our book, they're the guys who wrote the great uh, Barrington Declaration, and their view was you protect the elderly and the immunocompromised, and you let everybody else live their life. When you get down to little kids, I mean, very, very few little kids truly got sick from COVID. So, you know, the idea that you try and let the society coexist with the disease to the extent possible is, in the end, what I think was the right, was the right answer. You know, reading over your book, it was bracing in some ways to go back to those days because it was so scary and painful at the time it was going through. And and I think some of these decisions were made because leaders felt like we have to do something, not necessarily knowing what that something should be. The goal of your book in some ways is to try to get people to look at the pandemic more clearly so that next time we're not quite panicking the same way in the moment. I have all the sympathy in the world for panicking in the moment. You're right. We, we did panic in the moment. And you can argue that was the right thing to do. And maybe we could have even panicked a little more quickly. But then as the data starts to become clear, the fact that there were still kids out of school um, a couple of years later, I mean, that's where it gets that's where it gets insane. The evidence was really clear already that if kids miss school, particularly underprivileged children, the effect on them is absolutely devastating. And so there is an obligation at some point to say, what are we doing here? Who's suffering? Who's not suffering? Who's paying the price of this? And does this really make sense? And instead, we got so bogged down in political partisanship that nobody nobody was willing to do that, and we forgot how to listen to each other. We need to remember how to, how to listen to each other and not dismiss people with views we don't like as crazy people. And then the other lesson is that Leaders need to be leaders, and that means not hiding behind other people. And our leaders hid behind epidemiologists in the crisis, and they've hidden behind the gods of the market for the last number of decades and refused to do things like say, maybe it doesn't make sense to let this hospital be sold to a private equity firm because we understand that a private equity firm's sole duty is to its shareholders. And maybe when it comes to people's health, we need to have another value at work. I want to ask you guys a little bit about the business lessons from the pandemic. This podcast started in the heat of the pandemic, and there was a sense during that first year or so that the speed and urgency of dealing with the pandemic was like a model, that it was making businesses better, you know, and that and that business could adapt and move faster and could have better outcomes. The vibe of your book isn't necessarily positive that those lessons have lasted. What do you think are the lasting lessons for businesses from having gone through the pandemic? Well, if you're an airline, you can lay off your entire staff and still get $25 billion. Not quite entire staff, Joe, just to play fact checker. (laughs) I'm skeptical as to whether there are any lessons that were learned. Um, 
to be to be honest. Um, the stock market started going up again. Small businesses got screwed. Nobody cared. So if you were a big business or a tech company, you did great. I think some of the lessons are that the government will come to the aid of big business in any means possible when there is a crisis. And despite all the talk in the corridors of power about the importance of small business to the American economy, and by the way, that's real, it's small business that leads the economy out of recession, small business is, is the biggest creator of jobs, but the government comes to the aid of the big. I think the best example in the book of small businesses getting stomped on is restaurants. Independent restaurants. I mean, they, they, first of all, restaurant owners all over the country really tried to help their employees, had food drives, had money drives, tried to keep them on salary as long as they could. And yet, when they did the PPP, the, the first and second round of aid for small businesses, restaurants were left out. I'm going to play fact checker again. Restaurants weren't totally shut out of the PPP, but the rules of it made it difficult for them, for them to use it. But no, seriously, I wanted to go back to your question about things business should know. And I think it's that the world moves really quickly and the wisdom of the experts is often quite wrong. In the immediate start of the pandemic, you had businesses say, we don't need offices. Look at this Zoom thing. Isn't this marvelous? Wait a minute. What were we just hearing a couple of years ago about the importance of culture and investing in offices so that people can be together and collaborate? And look, here we are a couple of years later and people are like, wait, yeah, culture, the importance of being together. So I think I think one thing to take away from this is just be, be careful of these momentary things because they change. They change on a dime. And then, you know, if you had listened to the experts about inflation, you would have said, we're not going to have any inflation. We haven't had inflation for decades. That thing is dead. And and lo and behold, look where we've been for the last period of time, inflation. And so I think I would reiterate the importance of thinking for yourself and the importance of not believing the fad of the moment. Oh, another one, right? That we're all going to buy everything online from now on in and retail is dead. And that turned out not to be true either. So there's this constant flood of things that get reflected at you that is the conventional wisdom of the moment. And a year later, it's wrong. What Bethany and Joe are pinpointing is our impulse to lean into decisions that have already been made, patterns already in place, and not rethink them in the face of new information. It's a very human trait, but one that can limit our effectiveness. After the break, we'll hear about more insights on leadership and parallels to the Enron debacle. We'll be right back. We'll be back in a moment after a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. There was panic that set in that night because I didn't want to let people down. We're back with a Parnassaran of Capital One business. She was recalling the time she woke up in a cold sweat, terrified that the new product she had been working on might fail. So the next morning, she sat down and wrote an email. It was Sunday morning, and I said, you know what? I'm going to just like share this with my peers. It was very emotional. It was like sort of a cry for help. Aparna realized that if the new product didn't take off, she needed a plan B, preferably multiple plan Bs. I'm inviting them to be the thought partners so that we are mitigating as much risk as possible and we have contingency plans in place as we make this move. You write something like this and your heart is pounding, should I send this? It was a super vulnerable moment for me. But then I was like, I'm going to just send this. Like, what's the worst that will happen? It can't be worse than being on the front page of the <laughs> newspaper. So she held her breath and hit send. What happened next would surprise even her. 
We'll hear about that later in the show. It's all part of Capital One Business's Spotlight on Business Leaders, following Reed's Refocus Playbook. Before the break, we heard Bethany McLean and Joe Nocera, co-authors of the book The Big Fail, talk about lessons from the pandemic. Now, they share insights about Operation Warp Speed, panic versus thoughtfulness in leadership, and the pros and cons of a market-based society. It sounds like the lessons that bigger businesses could get from all of this is like, I don't have to worry about risk so much because someone's going to take care of me in a way that smaller businesses maybe don't have that safety net. I think that's a really fair summary because every time big business has gotten in trouble, the Fed has stepped in by lowering interest rates and big business then can access, even failing big businesses, can access the capital markets on incredibly good terms. That's a luxury that isn't available to smaller business. And yet we don't really think about that funding imbalance as part of the world we live in. One bright spot in the book was Operation Warp Speed and the vaccine development and distribution effort may not have been optimally efficient, but it yielded results quickly. What are the lessons from that effort? So what I love about the Warp Speed story was it was people in government recognizing the limitations of the private market to fix the problem. If you were just a pure sort of um, uh, capitalist, you would say, well, private companies are going to step in and make vaccines, so we don't have to worry, let the market function. But it doesn't work that way because the vaccine business is not one that is attractive to modern Wall Street for a whole host of reasons that we go through. And it needs government cooperation to get the manufacturing scaled up. And people saw that. People in the government realized, no, 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 wait, you need this cooperation between government and business. And yes, now you can point fingers at the amount of profits the pharmaceutical companies have made. But I I don't think any of that takes away from the fundamental accomplishment of warp speed. What's at stake if we don't learn the lessons from the pandemic? Is it financial? Is it health? Is it political? I think the lesson is that we need to be more thoughtful. We need to not panic at first, and we need to be willing to talk to various scientists who might have different thoughts about how to go about it. I think we need to rediscover what leadership is. I think certainly politicians need to rediscover what what leadership is. We need to remember that there are things that show us that we're all in it together because people had been suffering for decades from lack of access to health care and continued to suffer from that. That made the pandemic much worse for all of us. And so we are all in it together. I realize that Twitter is not America, but if you go to Twitter these days, you see the same arguments vociferously back and forth between the people who think all the mitigation measures were bullshit and the people who think that if you didn't mask up, you were killing people. It's still going on. And it's crazy. There's just wasn't, there hasn't been enough science around what works and what doesn't. There's been very little science around what works and what doesn't. And so here we are, three, four years later, arguing about whether masks work or not. 
I guess I would add to that, there is no pandemic plan in the sense that there has to be flexibility built into it. If you had argued we should take the plan for influenza and applied it to COVID, you would have been wrong. Influenza is spread in schools. Schools are super spreaders and kids did die during the 1918 flu. It's different. So you can't say that because we prepared for that pandemic, we should take those lessons and use them for the next pandemic. You have to look at what's actually happening. We all know the phrase, follow the science, right? Which seemed to imply that science was this settled thing, that it was truth with a capital T. Science is a set of assumptions that then you continue to look at the evidence that's coming in in the real world and you say, is that assumption valid or, or is it or is it not valid? And if it's not valid, then, then, then you change your mind. And so this, this idea that everything has to be settled and there, there needs to be truth with a capital T and the plan needs to be decided on and then we just march through that without looking at what's happening, that doesn't work that way. That's not life. There is an irony, right, that at the very start of the pandemic, there was incredible nimbleness in embracing lockdowns, even if it may not ultimately have been the ideal solution. And yet once that one decision was made, like you didn't see the nimbleness sustained and we didn't continue to sort of rethink. And it's curious why we can't keep moving at the pace that we did at the, at the beginning, be open in that way. Well, I mean, the real answer is that the initial move to lockdown was built around panic. Yes, it was important to do something. And, and I'm not against locking down at the beginning because you're, you're trying to keep the hospitals from being overwhelmed. You know, but if you're thinking about it the right way, you're saying, OK, we're not we're only going to do this for like five weeks and then we'll stop it. So you guys have worked on other books that were dealing with big seminal moments in American society and in business. And you pointed out things that you thought should change. When you look at this book, are you more optimistic that there will be positive changes going forward? Are you less optimistic? I actually think I have gotten more cynical over the years about the ability for anything to change. In the wake of Enron, we talked about corporate governance and we talked about short-termism and how important it was for business to have a more long-term view. That worked. In the wake of the financial crisis, we talked about the American system of financing homeownership and how this was a silver lining that we would finally take a look at this and think about what we wanted to do. Over a decade later, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are still in conservatorship. That worked. Uh, so I, I, I don't, I don't know. I'd love to say we're going to go forward with a different view that we're going to take a look at private equities. The next time a private equity firm is about to buy a nursing home or a hospital, the regulators in charge are going to say, "Huh, that hadn't didn't pan out so well last time." Maybe Maybe we're not going to do that. Will they? I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. I do think that one big obvious lesson is that private equity and that the market shouldn't be controlling what happens in the healthcare system. The market is make more money every quarter. Or if you're private equity, pull money out of these nursing homes uh, for our investors. When in fact, they need more money. They need more help. The thing I'm, I'm encouraged by, I do think that the nursing home issue, the private equity issue, really came to the fore during the pandemic. And you did see people trying to claw back some money just to call them on it. And if you've noticed, very recently, there have been some efforts by the FTC to clip the wings of private equity. Whatever private equity used to do that was useful to society— 
no, not anymore. They just want to pull money out. And the nursing homes are a horrible, horrible example of that. I actually am a little bit more of a believer, I think, in the market than Joe is. I kind of have Winston Churchill's old uh, mantra about democracy in, in mind, the worst system ever, with the possible exception of everything else that's ever been designed. And I feel that way about capitalism, too. But I do think the lesson is that you need to look really carefully at the structure of the market because all markets aren't created equally. So take hospitals, for example, if who makes money is being dictated by government policy, but then you're saying that hospital closure should be dictated by a hospital's failure to make money. Well, wait, that's not the market, that's government incentives. And the same, I think, is true about the presence of private equity in an industry. Are their incentives aligned with those of other stakeholders? And if they're not, then you need to think twice about that. And so my view is just more thoughtfulness about when the market is functioning and when it's not. I don't necessarily disagree with that. We thought a lot about this, about this idea during the process of finishing the book. Maybe I've come out in a more nuanced place and maybe you have too. So maybe we sound like we uh, agree now. (laughs) Well, this has been great. Thank you guys. Ton of fun. Thank you, Bob. Thanks for having us. Listening to Joe and Bethany, I find myself torn between my own settled thoughts about COVID lockdowns and the strongly held analysis in their book. What I take away is a renewed imperative to check our own assumptions. Pixar founder Ed Catmull told me recently that he's learned that half of all the things he's absolutely certain of are dead wrong, but he'll never know which half is which. To really grow requires humility and openness, even to people and ideas that seem outlandish. I'm Bob Safian. Thanks for listening. And now, a final word from our brand partner, Capital One Business. Throughout the day, text messages and emails kept pouring in. Whatever you need, just let us know. We're back one more time with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was telling us about a Sunday morning email she fired off in a moment of panic. Minutes later, her inbox was overflowing. And the support she found wasn't just emotional, it was practical. We talked about detailed contingency plans and we created our go-to-market strategy. Before we are in full rollout mode, we had stage gates so that we could test and quickly learn and iterate. And within a matter of like six months, as we were rolling things out channel by channel, those stage gates would allow us to pivot if we saw something that we didn't like. That day, Aparna learned a lesson that stayed with her. Having multiple plan Bs doesn't just expand your options. It gives you new opportunities. The best way to pivot is actually open doors for thoughtful conversations because humility in knowing that you actually don't know everything as well as the empathy in knowing that disruption is always drastic and abrupt helps you go through that pivot with other people in a very different way. Capital One Business is proud to support entrepreneurs and leaders working to scale their impact from Fortune 500s to first-time business owners. For more resources to help drive your business forward, visit CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. That's CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. Masters of Scale Rapid Response is a Wait What original. I'm Bob Safian, your host and Masters of Scale's editor-at-large. Our executive producer is Chris McLeod. Our producers are Chris Gauthier, Adam Skuse, Alex Morris, Tucker Ligurski, and Masha Makotonina. Our music director is Ryan Holiday. 
Original music and sound design by Eduardo Rivera, Ryan Holiday, Hayes Holiday, and Nate Kinsella. Audio editing by Keith J. Nelson, Stephen Davies, Stephen Wells, Andrew Nault, Liam Jenkins, and Timothy Lou Lee. Mixing and mastering by Aaron Bastinelli and Brian Pugh. Our CEO and chairman of the board is Jeff Berman. Wait What was co-founded by June Cohen and Darren Triff. Special thanks to Jodine Dorsey, Alfonso Bravo, Tim Cronin, Erica Flynn, Sarah Tartar, Katie Blazing, Marielle Carricker, Chineme Ozuquena, Colin Howarth, Brandon Klein, Sammy Aputa, Kelsey Saison, Luisa Velez, Nikki Williams, and Justin Winslow. Visit mastersofscale.com to find the transcript for this episode and to subscribe to our email newsletter.